Welcome to the Canadian Real Estate Investor, where hosts Daniel Foch and Nick Hill navigate the market and provide the tools and insights to build your real estate portfolio. Welcome back to another episode of the Canadian Real Estate Investor Podcast. My name is Daniel Foch. I am joined here by my co-host, the lovely Nick Hill. Nick, how's it going today? Hello, hello. Thanks for the lovely introduction. Today so far has been lovely. To keep with the theme of, of loveliness we've got going on here, I uh, started the day off with a quick phone call to MPAC, which is the Municipal Property Assessment Corporation. Now, I know that that's Ontario-centric, Dan, so I'm sure you're aware that there's similar regulatory bodies in, in other provinces. I'm not familiar with that, but the reason for my call to MPAC this morning was to ensure that the triplex that you, myself, and, and our other partners just offered on is actually a triplex. So we, we see this a lot that, you know, properties get listed as duplexes or triplexes, and it might not be legally duplexes or triplexes. But good news is called, spoke with a great gentleman over at Impact this morning. We're zoned Res 333, which means there's three separate dwelling units on the residential site. So the offer's in. We do have a competitive offer, so cross your fingers, man. We might be three units richer. Or I shouldn't say that, but we might have three units more indebted, I think. Three units it. poorer is just probably the more accurate thing. But yeah. So that's how I started my morning. And then, you know, that did trickle into the rest of what we're going to be talking about today. So what, why don't you tell everyone what this episode's about before we get into it? Yeah, well, I think a couple of things there. You know, the fact that we are likely going to be competing with a handful of offers is pretty interesting from my perspective on that property. So it might be worth mm-hmm. discussing the seasonality. We're starting to see prices ramp up in the greater Toronto area. We're starting to see volume ramp up in the greater Toronto area or in the Ontario markets as a whole. And there's a couple of reasons I want to mention that, but we'll get to that. But you know, to me, these are indicative of the seasonality that we're starting to see in the real estate market. Summer's over, went through a period of low sales. I wouldn't say that we're ever going to get back to that volume that we saw before, that record high volume that you hear the Canadian Real Estate Association talking about. The market was running about 25 to 40% hot during COVID. So don't expect us to get back there, but we will see it's definitely not going to be trading at those July or August lows, right? That's sort of undisputable. And we maybe use that to, for those of you who you know, I don't think it. I think it goes without saying, but it's two days after the Bank of Canada rate hike announcement. That's obviously what we're going to be talking about today. And they went up seventy five basis points. But before we do that, let's talk a little bit about that seasonality that we just mentioned, Nick. That's a great segue into it. So I know you already said it. Summer isn't over technically yet, but unfortunately. It's getting there. I can smell the fall in the air. You know, my girlfriend's already drinking pumpkin spice lattes. So unfortunately, it's happening. But I wanted to look at the seasonality of real estate. We hear this all the time, the different markets, how it affects prices, how it affects activity. Obviously, there's a lot of other variables right now that are affecting it. But let's let's get rid of those for a second and talk about what I think is a wonderful leading indicator of the seasonality change in real estate. And that is the spirit of Halloween, baby. For those of you who are unfamiliar with this very unique retailer, let's do a deeper dive. So during the Halloween season, Spirit opens up over 1,400 stores across North America. And the Spirit of Halloween website is open year-round 
offering its in-store products online. But my favorite is when we start to see the spirit of Halloween retail stores pop up everywhere. So let's just look at the real estate aspect of this for a second. One of their, I believe it's their CEO says, one of their main challenges is securing the best locations, but they have an excellent real estate team that works year round, year round to scope out and lock in the best locations available. So one of the senior directors said, pretty much from November 1st to the minute our door is closed, we are out there prepping for the next season. So we are literally 12 months out of the year getting ready for that holiday season. They're only open for, you know, two, three months. Now, the coolest thing here is they've got this internal real estate team where the agents spend months negotiating the deals. A typical store that they're targeting is between seven and 10,000 square feet. Some may be smaller in suburban areas, but what these agents look for is vacant land in shopping centers, you know, close to places that have Best Buy's, Targets, Walmarts, etc. Now, the Spirit of Halloween business model is essentially a pop-up store that you know, comes in every, literally every season. Now it started back in 1984 with the founder doing one pop-up store. He then grew it to 60 stores nationwide. It was bought out in 1999 by Spencer's Gifts, which is kind of a gag gift company. But I just thought this is, this is a hilarious leading indicator of, of the seasonality of the real estate market. And I think it'd be very interesting to maybe pose this question to strip mall guy as to what these, and that's a, a guy that we quote all the time, real estate Trent on Twitter. But I just found this kind of fascinating, you know, as a guy that is last minute and just about everything, especially Halloween shopping, I have definitely gone to spirit Halloween probably several times in the past. And, you know, they do, they pop up. It's a really interesting model. These agents are literally scouring empty leases. Yeah. So it's funny, like they actually have their lease criteria on the, and I, I know this because I visited them a couple of times. I used to do like field trips with my university program to ICSC, the shopping or the, their big retail conference. And, you know, they look for three month leases that include, this is mm-hmm. kind of cool, that include a kickout clause. So basically the landlord, if the landlord gets a permanent tenant prior to their arrival, then they can just occupy the space with that long-term tenant and Spirit will move on to a different site. They open around September 1st and they want to be open until November 1st, obviously the day after Halloween. So they want their lease to be July till November, just to specify exactly what you're talking about. Here's one of the cool parts and I want to get back to the idea that I mentioned about treating yourself like a hedge fund. If you want to be an investor and you want to be an investor of this scale, you have to remember that you have to have a very specific set of criteria. And a lot of these retailers have that as well. So there's a, there's a reason certain towns don't have a Starbucks, even though everybody wants one, or certain towns don't have a Home Depot, even though everybody wants one. It's because retailers have very specific sets of criteria that a municipality needs to meet in order for them to feel compelled or for the business case for them to open in that municipality. And so they want a population of 35,000 plus living within a 3.5 mile radius and they want a car count of at least 25,000 cars per day. So that's your AADT number, your average annual daily traffic. And that's a metric that you can Google for different streets in areas that you're potentially looking to invest. So if you're a retail investor, just a couple of different metrics that might be worth you considering. And while their ideal location is 5,000 to 50,000 square feet, and I've been in one of their 50,000 square foot stores. It's a lot of Halloween stuff. In the new market area, but it is absolutely wild to see them whip up a retail concept that quickly and then tear it down just days later. So anyway, without further ado, let's talk a little bit about what's going on in the market here. You mentioned pumpkin spice lattes. I actually went Walmart yesterday 
picked up some PSL creamer myself. <laughs> I can't afford the Starbucks stuff, but I, I did a little little bit of a DIY pumpkin spice latte at my house. And it may be fall, but two things right now are not falling. GTA house prices, as I mentioned, which I think could be a little bit of a canary in the coal mine for real estate across the country. And the other thing is interest rates. Interest rates are not falling. So Ooh, quickly yep. here, I'm going to mention, that's my beautiful butchered segue as a tradition. <laughs> but house prices in the GTA and, and in Ontario, the Toronto Real Estate Board, I do a monthly market report at the beginning of each month, similar to the Canadian real estate market report that I do in the middle of each month because Korea data comes out on the 15th. But I think that it's important for people across the country to look at the two big markets in the Canadian real estate, Vancouver and Toronto. The reason being that they're more credit dependent and they almost, because they're a little bit more sophisticated, they almost have a forward lookingness towards these rate hikes, right? So Toronto dropped really quickly. It dropped faster than any other market in Canada. And it's not to say that it deserved to or that, you know, it was, I mean, it probably did have some signs of of mania leading up to it, but it sold off quicker because it was forward looking. It was almost pricing in, you hear in quotation marks, the rate hikes. It's not to say, again, that it doesn't have more downside, but it'll likely start its recovery process earlier than other municipalities. And I think that we're pretty far out from seeing that. But so that's why I almost look to, and you, you know, you mentioned Spirit Halloween being a leading indicator. I would say, you know, I would look to municipalities like Toronto and Vancouver as a potential leading indicator for the recovery, the broad recovery of the Canadian market, right? Okay. So let's get to the rate hike. I feel like this was one of the most talked about rate hikes. What do you think? I mean, go on Twitter, go on Instagram, go on Facebook, TikTok, wherever you get your entertainment and your news. Don't take anything too seriously on there. And don't go on TikTok, I don't think. I mean, I I believe that TikTok was calling for rate cuts today. (laughs) Oh. Yeah. So I pulled- You hate to see it. uh, Yeah. So I pulled Twitter and Instagram. I pulled my Twitter and- I think it was 48%, over a 1,000 people, 48% voted for a 75 basis point increase. Same thing on Instagram, over a 1,000 people voted around the same thing, 48%. So I think, and this goes to that forward-lookingness that I was just talking about, I think that consumers are relatively sophisticated. They almost know what to expect here, right? They're educated. Bank of Canada was trending on Twitter today. We know more about what's happening than we ever have, right? Yeah, and I think that's due to the fact that you know, people such as us and, and a lot of other good agents and a lot of other good people in the industry out there have been more focused on educating the, the general population. I also feel the general population can't really ignore this. You know what I mean? Like it is, it is literally everywhere. It's the front page of, of headlines. It's, it's all over the news. So to be honest, I'm, I'm happy to see that, that more people are, are taking this stuff in and, and trying to have a better understanding of it because this is going to affect a lot of people. I was going to save this for the end here, but you know, 53% of home buyers and loan renewers who chose a variable rate mortgage in the last six to eight months or so are going to be in, in danger of hitting that trigger rate. And that's when you're no longer to pay off your principal over your existing amortization schedule. Go back and listen to another, uh, I think it was episode 14 or 15. We went, did a deep dive on trigger rates and stress tests. But yeah, this is going to cause some hurt for some people, even though this was heavily predicted and expected. All the big banks, economists, et cetera, were were predicting this. So, okay. So, why don't you read the statement from the Bank of Canada website? Bank of Canada increases policy interest rate by 75 basis points, continues qualitative tightening. The statement 
that happens thereafter, nobody really talks about. Can you read me just the beginning of that? Yeah, let's do it. So, the Bank of Canada today increased its target for the overnight rate to three and a quarter percent, with the bank rate being at three and a half percent and the deposit rate being at three and one quarter percent. The bank is also continuing its policy of quantitative tightening. The global and Canadian economies are evolving broadly in line with the bank's July projection. The effects of COVID-19 outbreaks, ongoing supply disruptions, and the war in Ukraine continue to dampen growth and boost prices. Global inflation remains high and measures of core inflation are moving up in most countries. In response, central banks around the world continue to tighten monetary policy. Economic activity in the United States has moderated, although the U.S. labor market remains tight. China is facing ongoing challenges from COVID shutdowns. Commodity prices have been quite volatile. Oil, wheat, lumber, we've seen prices have moderated while natural gas prices have risen. In Canada, CPI inflation eased in July to 7.6 from 8.1% because of a drop in gas prices. However, inflation, excluding gasoline, increased and data indicate a further broadening of price pressures, particularly in service industry. The bank's core measures of inflation continued to move up, ranging from 5 to 5.5% in July. Surveys suggest that short-term inflation expectations remain high. The longer this continues, the greater risk that elevated inflation becomes entrenched. The Canadian economy continues to operate in excess demand and labor markets remain tight. Canada's GDP grew by 3.3% in the second quarter. Well, this was somewhat weaker than the bank had projected. Indicators of domestic demand were very strong. Consumption grew by about 9.5% and business investment was up by close to 12%. With higher mortgage rates, the housing market is pulling back as anticipated following unsustainable growth during the pandemic. The bank continues to expect the economy to moderate in the second half of the year as global demand weakens and tighter monetary policy here in Canada begins to bring demand more in line with supply. So a couple of things really struck me about this one. You know, you're starting to see an acknowledgement of the impact on housing prices. And honestly, I felt that this rate hike announcement was a nail biter until the last minute. I was driving home from taking Nora to her first day of senior kindergarten. And whenever I'm making that drive, I kind of listen to 680 News because it's just before the market opens and doesn't require as much focus as like a podcast would because I'm usually just chatting with her. Something important happened just before the rate hike, and that was that natural gas and oil started selling off. And so we're seeing this contraction in the commodity space. And that would usually lead to, you know, almost a deflationary thought process. So I'm wondering if the Bank of Canada might have actually been considering a 100 basis point hike until that happened, right? Where you almost just are starting to see this idea of the commodities rolling over and we're saying, okay, recession's about to start here, right? Yeah. And I don't think they're alone in that. We've seen you know, interest rates happening all over the world. The Reserve Bank of Australia, for instance, raised by half a point earlier this week. The Banco Central de Chile stunned people when they raised by a full point earlier this week. The European Central Bank's expected to raise rates by 75 bips and the Federal Reserve is expected to move forward with another rate hike later this month. So, we are not alone here. Yeah. And the next rate hike meeting is Wednesday, October 26th. And they're actually going to be releasing a monetary policy report, which will be published on that day. And then we only have one more for the year in Canada after that, which is December 
the 7th. Probably more important is thinking about the Federal Reserve FOMC meeting, which is on September 21st. I think that that's really going to give us some forward guidance on what we can expect from the Bank of Canada. I mean, a lot of people want to theorize that, you know, we've heard quotes from CIBC's chief economists, etc., all the bank's chief economists that, you know, we have this idea that anyone in, in Canada is in control or can forecast this. But the reality is, I think that the Federal Reserve is driving the ship. And I, I've said that a number of times, right? Also on Monday, October 17th, the scheduled dates for the release of the Business Outlook Survey and the Canadian Sur- Survey of Consumer Expectations. So those two documents in combination with the Monetary Policy Report are all things that I would encourage people who are thinking about investing to get an understanding for how the Federal Reserve is thinking about these things, right? Nick, I think we were talking about an article by Stephanie Hughes in the Financial Post. Big shout out to Steph Hughes, by the way. She's excellent. I think she's hopefully going to be joining me on the Twitter space this week to talk about the Bank of Canada rate hike, actually. So do you want to just maybe give a couple of things that were discussed that we should have been thinking about heading into this rate hike that you can also kind of roll over to what we should be thinking about heading into the next rate hike. Yeah, totally. So this, again, just to clarify, this article was written before today, Wednesday, September 7th, when the rate hike actually came out. But these points, as Dan mentioned, this is stuff we need to be thinking about now and and moving forward. So what happens if we deviate from the neutral range? Now, we're about 3%. So theoretically, the impact is not neutral. It should, by design, have a negative or contractionary impact on the economy. Other things there, you know, we should be watching is the Canadian dollar, which was dropping when we headed into this rate hike, as well as inflation, which is also- I think the Canadian dollar dropped from 77 to 76 cents US. So again, a lot of this has to do with controlling the strength of the Canadian dollar. So we're not importing inflation as well, right? And you don't want a weaker Canadian dollar because we're so globalized now as you start buying goods outside of the country, if they become relatively more expensive, that gets passed on to the consumer. That inflation number is going to be impacted by that commodity sell-off that I mentioned. But you also notice that you know they, this was the first time that they mentioned real estate or the housing market in the actual writing. Like they have been talking about it a little bit, and almost like hiring scapegoats to have these discussions because Tiff's like you know infamous for not being exceptionally good at at talking about these things. I think the article also talks about that CIBC statement that we mentioned, Nick. Do you want to just quickly go through that? Because I think that's a, it's a funny piece of, it's almost pop culture right now. It's created a war between like TikTok and Twitter. Oh God. Economists such as Ian Pollock, the Canadian Imperial Bank of Commerce, CIBC's managing director and head of fixed income have argued that a narrative shift could be at hand. With the central bank pausing its aggressive rate hike cycle after hiking 75 points in September and taking a more data-dependent approach in the months ahead. And I think you have a famous quote from a very controversial app here. <laughs> Go ahead. Yeah, fair enough. I mean, I think that this quote from CIBC's Ian Pollock is really what's created this divisiveness between like the more bullish TikTok community and the more bearish Twitter community and such that... And I, and I like to use these two. I know it, sa- it almost sounds crazy to think about these two two different social media platforms as like indicators, but I think it's it's a really important thing to look at to get an understanding for what consumer sentiment is. So on one hand, you have TikTok literally thinking that rate hikes are one over, even though the statement directly says that they expect September 7th to be the last rate hike. But then it evolved. It's almost like become this broken telephone that rates are actually going to be getting cut right? TikTok legitimately thought that, I mean, on average, that the rate hike announcement or the BOC rate announcement on the 7th was going to be a cut. 
And so from my perspective, I think that it's created this like break in pop culture. This almost like bulls versus bears. And you start to see this happening in everything, right? Like, you know, the polarity that you're seeing and it becomes a shouting match between the the loudest on, you know, you could say like the left and right as an example. And that but we're seeing that that almost like divisiveness happen. It's like this phenomena of social media, right? So let's actually examine that data-driven approach that they're speaking about, right? That you keep hearing Tiff Macklem reference employment in a lot of these pressers. And when pushed on the impact of interest rate increases on the average Canadian household, Tiff responded that the biggest cause of people defaulting on their mortgages is not having jobs, right? So what are job numbers telling us right now? If that's, you know, because it's not the first time that he said that, right? We've heard Tiff mention job numbers a number of different times. Obviously, the Bank of Canada is using what they would consider good job numbers to give themselves the green light to continue this rate hiking cycle. So what should Canadians be looking at to get an understanding for whether or not we can expect more of this from the Bank of Canada? And what are those numbers telling us right now, Nick? Yeah, good question. So if we look at the if we look at the numbers, and again, this is pulled from from StatsCan. So you'd think it'd be a fairly legitimate source. However, there may be a little conflict of interest there. We won't get into that. But unemployment held steady at 4.9% in July, matching the historic low achieved in the month before in June. So while employment has changed, you know, a little on a monthly basis in July, down 31,000, which is basically down 0.4% from May to July, from May 2021 to May 2022, employment had actually increased by more than 1 million. So that's an increase of a million and 56,000 up by 5.7%. Now, there's another important metric here, and that's labor force participation rate. So what is the labor force participation rate? It is an estimate of the economy's active workforce. The formula is the number of people ages 16 or older who are employed or actively seeking employment divided by the total non-institutionalized civilian working age population. In July of 2022, the core age labor force participation rate was 87.9. Pretty good. Yeah. And I think that that actually, they mentioned in that StatsCan report that that's actually recovering what was missing or or recovered all the way back to that 2019. So your pre-COVID levels. The interesting part is that they use this core metric and they do this with inflation as well, right? It's almost like they have these two deliberate, like they have like a public facing stat and then a real stat. And I think that, you know, there, there was a StatsCan report that said the impact of the aging labor market on participation rates. And I think one of the, the big challenges that we're facing in Canada, and this alludes to what we talked about in our last episode, Nick, is really understanding the impact of an aging economy, right? And an aging market. And to me, what happens in that respect is going to, to have a major impact on the secular shift that will drive the next major trend in, in real estate investment, right? What boomers are going to be doing. And when you look at that labor force participation rate outside of core, so you know you mentioned the core age labor force participation stat, the story is very different. We're seeing people retiring at significant rates, right? That's our parents' generation. That's baby boomers. That's Gen Xers. 
one of the things that the pandemic did was it expedited the changes in life plans. So for a lot of people from our generation, that meant maybe moving to the suburbs earlier, right? That meant maybe starting a household or a family earlier than they had originally anticipated because you almost had like this pause and reflect period of two years, right? And for baby boomers, a lot of that was, you know, moving out of the city, moving up to cottage country, becoming a snowbird, you know, retiring, right? Early retirement was a very common theme. And so thinking more about how those consumers are behaving to me is is huge because number one, they hold a lot of real estate, right? I think something like high 70s percentage of baby boomers own real estate. So they're all at, at some point in the future going to be transacting that. But then what they're also likely, they also value homeownership. So they're likely going to what? They're going to go and buy somewhere else. And they're probably not going to be buying the houses that they're selling or four bedroom homes with two stories and you know multiple flights of stairs and 10 bathrooms or whatever, right? They're going to be buying likely bungalows so that they can age in place. They don't have to go up and downstairs. And they like, you got to think about the things that they value, walkability, Microurbanism, smaller urban municipalities, proximity to airports, proximity to the US border, proximity to casinos. Honestly, like it's actually, it legitimately was looking at a deck for a, a development out in Fort Erie and that was in there, right? There's an individual who develops aging in place subdivisions for seniors, a client of mine. And he talks about all of these different things and it's proximity to the US border so that people can get on a flight, right? proximity to a casino and proximity to all of your local retail and commercial service amenities. And the final one is proximity to a hospital. So air, there's the airport proximity and the hospital proximity, both of which are pretty important in this equation. Wow. Everything you said right there has has certainly got me thinking of one of our favorite markets, which we'll, we won't add. Don't even say it. Don't say it. I, <laughs> we've talked about it enough. Well, you know, it would be, it would actually be cool to almost unpack this and do an episode on like, what are the biggest boomer friendly destinations, right? Ooh, I like, like top it. five boomer markets in Canada to really like unpack. Cause I really do feel that that is going to be the next most important trend happening in Canadian real estate. Cause they have the biggest assets to sell. They hold all of the existing equity and they're going to take that equity. So they're going to probably, if they sell off, they're going to decrease the price of one asset likely, and they're going to increase the price of another asset, right? So they're going to be, you got to think about almost a, like a, when you see the stock market rebalancing, right? From one industry yeah. to another. Something similar to that is going to happen just based on the secular shift of boomers. I want to quickly go through the idea of the growing debt burden for Canadians. For those of you who want to, I'm going to reference two things here. So number one is FraserInstitute.org. They have this document called Growing Debt Burden Canadians. Basically, just examines the household indebtedness. And this is where you're starting to see in Canada. Like, I actually think that the Bank of Canada is really almost trying to force a bit of a deleveraging on Canadian households. Like people are still, Canadians are still piling on debt, right? Even though rate hikes are going up. And nobody really knows why because the economy seems relatively healthy, right? Savings were increasing, you know, nationally during the pandemic. So a lot of economic indicators are tell, like they're, they're almost conflicting, right? And, and so it doesn't necessarily make a lot of sense. And we do need to start seeing Canadians deleveraging unstrapping themselves from debt and spending some of that cash that's being hoarded to keep the economy going. The next piece I want to talk about is the hope graphic. And this is something I found on Twitter. It's shared a lot and it's basically... Yeah, this is good. Yeah, if you just Google it, a roadmap for how the economy responds to changes in rates. So it's an acronym, HOPE, H-O-P-E, Housing, Orders, Profits, Employment. If there's one thing that I would say is worth remembering, and this is the big takeaway from why we talk about rate hikes so much and why it's important for Canadian investors, why it's important for any investor thinking about the 
economy, the broad economy, and especially an economy that is so dependent on housing, like most of the Western world, but especially Canada, probably the only economies I would say that depend on it more are Australia and New Zealand, our Commonwealth friends. And I still think that they actually have more industry outside of housing, whereas Canada, we depend a lot on housing. So housing is always the first to slow. Why? Because it's a credit dependent industry. People don't buy houses cash, right? They buy them with credit. And so as soon as interest rates go up, or down, whatever it is, you'll see a you know you'll see an increase. When rates were dropping like crazy, you look at co- the beginning of COVID. Rates dropped, prices just started climbing. Right, we had a huge bull run during COVID, and then what happens is new orders. They call it new orders, but this is basically like people buying things, anything. But you know, if you were to use it in this direct context, is residential investment. So a lot of my buddies who are in the contracting space, record years, year after year, 2020, 2021 even this year so far, right? And so you're starting to see that consumer expenditure in residential investment trickling into other industries. And then profits either grow or contract. You know, During COVID, profits were growing for those industries. And now, I think somebody posted something from the real estate forums today that basically developer profits have actually shrunk already as a result of rate hikes starting earlier this year developer profits have shrunk to basically there's no margin left in developing. And what happens then? Then you start to cancel projects, right? And when you start to cancel... And this could be me talking about projects could be a thousand unit condo tower in Toronto, or it could be one house that you're building, or could be me and Nick hiring a contractor to renovate a suite at a duplex that we just bought that just came available, right? Once the margins and the profits start getting eroded by capital costs in the further development of real estate and the progression of real estate, then Nick and I stop hiring contractors to flip those (laughs) units, right? Developers stop building condo towers, right? That's obviously a little bit less responsive because you can't just leave a giant concrete phallic object standing in the skyline without <laughs> so that they kind of have to finish it but i mean there's know. there's thousands of them in china that are sitting there empty like that right i guess it's, yeah. it's less frowned upon there actually i think yeah. the i think i don't know if this is still true but the tallest tower in brazil i believe was abandoned so it was like built and it was the tallest tower and then i think they never got the curtain walls on it and it's so cool you can look at like i remember just like looking at videos drone videos and stuff and it's basically like completely like there's no walls on it. It's just a huge concrete grid basically standing in the sky and it had become like a, I guess like a favela or whatever. Maybe maybe that's the wrong word, but like a people were living there, right? Like squatting wow. in this tower. Yeah, totally cool. And running extension cords up, up it and whatever and building their own like retaining walls and maybe an interesting thing to Google, but I'll try and find the name of it when you're speaking next year. But yeah, so I mean, that's, that's sort of like to me the big takeaway, right? Is are we going to start seeing economic contraction? I would say you're probably maybe more in touch with it. You talk to more realtors than I do. You talk to more contractors than I do. Do you think that we're going to start seeing this trickle through. Yeah, let me answer that. I have one other quick anecdote of another very large abandoned building. Look up the the main hotel in North Korea. It looks like a crazy pyramid looking thing. And yeah, that is like the, the pillar of evil buildings. Uh, yeah, it really is. Anyway, maybe we'll do a cool episode on, on major abandoned projects or, or something like that. But, you know, yeah, with the communities that I've been speaking to uh, across the country, Yes and no. I mean, have we started to see some contraction? Yes. 
is that mostly driven by your sentiment right now and you know just overall fear and, and ignorance i think so i mean look you and i right now personally on the mortgage and real estate and investing side are working with multiple clients that have been hesitant to pull the you know, quote unquote trigger to to purchase something because they, even though they have the cash and they're informed and savvy investors, they are sitting on the sidelines waiting, right? And that's why we see all this other stuff happening. That's why rents are going up. And and again, going back to that, you know, term I'm trying to coin, we're we're not in a bull, we're not in a bear. I feel like we're in a bit of a kangaroo market, hopping all over the place. Now, we are getting a bit short on time here, Dan. So I did want to I have I've got three questions here. So you know, we spoke about the seasonality of real estate and we were able to work Spirit Halloween in there, which was great. We've talked about the rate hike. We've talked about the, you know, the the labor force. I want to get back to the rate hike because that's really what we're here to talk about. And I've got three questions. Is this it for rate hikes? What does it mean for the market if it is or if it isn't? And what does it mean for the Canadian real estate investor? Okay. To answer number one, I mean, I think that the only responsible answer is, is this it for rate hikes? The only responsible answer is, I don't know, right? And and the reality is that nobody knows. And anybody who, other than Jerome Powell, who tells you that they know is wrong, right? And, and I think that we need to, we need, really need to start thinking about things in that way, right? It's unfair for myself. First of all, you shouldn't be asking a realtor. You shouldn't be trusting a realtor with you know, mm-hmm. what's happening with monetary policy, myself included, right? So looking at, you know, TikToks of people saying that the rate hiking cycle is over, et cetera, unless they are Jerome Powell, right? Not even Tiff Macklem, unless they're Jerome Powell, we don't know, right? Because yeah. the US has a reserve currency status to protect and they're going to do whatever they can to make sure that that doesn't get eroded because that is what the global economic warfare looks like right now, right? So we will likely follow what the Fed does. That would be my answer to the question. So if the Fed hikes more than expected on the 21st, then yes, we will see more rate hikes. I just also add to that that you you and I went through the statements this morning and you got to really pay attention to the language here because that's all we can do. You're right. We don't know. Everyone's been getting it wrong. You know, a lot of people were predicting it right this time. But if you look, there is a serious lack of the phrase soft landing. Remember that? Remember when we were going to have a soft landing? That isn't being said anymore. Also, we have to remember, and we've mentioned this several times before, housing is just a byproduct of inflation, right? Everything we're talking about is just a byproduct of the fact that they have to get inflation back to that neutral rate. So if you look again, we will most likely need to raise further. We will be assessing how much higher. So if I had to guess, is this if it rate hikes? I don't know. I'd probably say no. I'd say we might see another 0.25 at some point this year. Again, we are at the whim of the Fed and and other central banks around the world. Anyways. Yeah. And I think that there are people more qualified than you and I to- I sure hope so. Yeah. So you know what? (laughs) I mean, one of the things I would encourage people to do is listen to the Twitter space that I put on where I actually have some of these qualified people on here. This episode will come out after that. So there'll be a recording available for the Toronto real estate Twitter space that I put on. But basically, I actually have the guy from Special Situations News who's like runs a huge economics newsletter and helped on that Oxford Research piece that came out recently. I'll get the title of it because I really want it. He's like, this is a big deal that this guy's going to be going to be talking about it. But we also have 
Deerpoint Macro, who basically talks a lot about, he works at a rates desk. He's anonymous because he works like literally in massive Canadian institutions on their rates desk. So he can't really talk about this stuff publicly, but he, you know, mentioned a couple of different indicators that were saying, okay, yeah, we're going to see hikes until the end of the year and potentially cuts early next year. I think the 10S, 20S curves and stuff like that, 2S, 10S, I can't remember the names of them. And again, trusting people, finding people who have the right information rather than trying to interpret like for me it's always just keep asking the question why right and try and get more information like it's a pursuit of knowledge here not just like jumping to a conclusion because you saw what you heard us talk about it or tiff Mackham talk about it right figure out your own opinion and, and you make your investment decision based on that right we're in what i would say is a stock pickers market now yeah completely agree okay so let's try to tackle these i'll even amalgamate these questions what does it mean for the market and what does that mean for investors. Like what should investors be doing in this kangaroo market that we're in right now, fresh after a 75 rate hike? Yeah. So from my perspective, I mean, look, I think that the central banks, the Fed, and it seems like the Bank of Canada now are sort of like suggesting that they're not going to be able to get to that previous inflation number that they were saying of that 2 to 3%. And they're going to have to stay outside of that neutral range that we're hearing them talk about of interest rates at 3%. So we know that this trickles into increased rents and we know that it trickles into increased capital costs. So you're going to see likely rents continue to climb as inflation gets pushed further to the consumer, which is unfortunate and it's not good for the economy and it creates more draw on that household expenditure. As we see more household expenditure, monthly costs start to be pushed into servicing of household debt and rent. You're going to start to see a deleveraging happen among a lot of, you know, we've seen this retail obsession with purchasing second homes in Canada, a lot of that's going to start to unwind because those people were buying in the last two years at record low rates and at record high prices. And that is not sustainable. So what this would mean is cap rates are likely to increase, right? We'll see the rates of return as the income goes up and the cost goes down, rates of return are going to get better. So I would say, and I, I always mention people ask, oh, you know, you say it's impossible to time the market, but now you're talking about, you know, this period of time being one of the best periods of time to purchase a property. I'm not saying to time the market, but I'm saying that the market will is most likely to present a lot of opportunity within the next 12 to 24 months as we start to see those phenomena manifest, as we start to see deleveraging, and as we start to see the income scenario increase. I completely agree with that. And I at this point, I don't even think it's about timing the market, right? It's about, again, when we, I've said this before, I'll say it again. It's about being patiently impulsive. So if you've been a good investor waiting to pounce on that deal, there's a better chance you're going to find that deal in the next two years than in the last two years. And I think that's the main takeaway from this is we're now entering into an economy where knowledge and capital have a much better relationship with each other than they did before because you know the last two years it was it was stupid money that can come in and you know oh I'm you know I went from zero to twenty doors now I'm a real estate investor but you don't have the systems you don't understand the market you don't have the knowledge now we're going into an era where knowledge is really going to play a much larger role so you know the advice is as always is stay as informed as you possibly can yeah and I think the ROI on that knowledge is better than ever as well, right? Like we're in a market where this is probably the first time where I would actually say that we've been presented with buying opportunities as millennial Canadian real estate investors, right? In such that like, it was an extremely competitive market. I would say other than like the sell-off between, 
2017 to like 2018, let's say, we haven't really necessarily been presented with real opportunity. And so right now, like researching and learning as much as you can about investing in real estate, about how the market's going to respond to like all of these different factors that we're talking about, identify all of the variables that matter in your next real estate investment decision and learn as much as you possibly can about them so that you can make a good investment because good investments are going to start showing themselves over the next little while, right? And so, you know, I would say and, and I think we're going to you and I are going to start doing a little bit of work on this. I know we're we're trying to wrap up here, but you know, we're actually going to be start reviewing deals on the podcast. We're going to we actually have a deal of the day segment that we're going to be bringing out so basically people can send us listings from realtor.ca. It has to be listed on realtor.ca so that it's easy for us to put in the show notes and easy for us to, you know, to make it searchable for for people who are listening along and want to just write it down with a pen and paper or whatever. And we're going to run it through the landlord deal analyzer. So landlord is basically an app that allows you to manage your own properties and they have a deal analyzer that basically you put in a couple of different inputs and it tells you whether or not, you know, or what the, what the returns are on the deal. It'll give you cap rates, etc. So the next thing that I think a couple of different things that we're going to talk about that we got coming up just for people to expect, we're going to actually go through what metrics we use to analyze deals, the top 5. And we're going to go through a couple of different strategies on you know how to really create and stabilize a good investment property. So keep doing your homework, keep learning as much as you can. Don't worry too much about the macro. You know, focus on making and finding a good investment that will stand the test of time, regardless of what the rate hiking schedule looks like, regardless of what interest rates are doing. And if you don't feel confident that you can do that today, then go spend the time learning until you are confident that you can make that investment. Because it shouldn't be a scary thing and it shouldn't be dependent on a bunch of different variables. The government or the central bank should not be able to decide whether or not your investment is viable. Yeah, I love that. You know, I'm super excited to get into the landlord stuff. I've been spending a lot of time on the application. I just want to finish off with just one little piece of information. So as of this morning, Prime across the board was 4.7. You'll probably start to receive communication from your bank as a mortgage agent. I've already seen it come in. The new Prime rate is going to be sitting at 5.45%. This will affect all variable rate mortgage holders, personal lines of credit, and any credit facility with a floating rate. So if you guys want more information on what this means, how it's going to affect you, reach out to Dan and myself. If you want to do business with us, reach out to the email in the show notes. And honestly, thanks so much for listening, guys. We've hit some pretty great numbers. We just were approaching 50,000 downloads across the country. Shout out to everyone. We wouldn't be able to do it without you. We're here doing this for you. So thank you very much. The Canadian Real Estate Ambassador is for entertainment purposes only and not financial or investment advice. Always do your own due diligence. Nick Hill is a mortgage agent with Premier Mortgage Center, license number 10317 and a partner in G&H Mortgage Group. Agent license is M21004037. Daniel Foch is a real estate broker at Royal LePage or Community Realty, a member of Royal LePage Commercial and a licensee with the Canadian Real Estate Association, Ontario Real Estate Association, and a member of the Toronto Real Estate Board.